Welcome back to Happy Porch Radio, the podcast for progressive agency owners and web professionals. Season three is focused on the growing number of agencies who are making the world a better place. We explore what this even means, why is it different from any other agency, and how can it be reconciled with the real-world challenges of running a profitable agency. Join your host, Barry O'Kane, as he speaks to leaders of agencies who are driven by their values to positively impact the world around them. In this episode, I speak to Matt Swartz, who founded Constructive, a specialized branding and web design firm in New York. They work exclusively with nonprofits and educational institutions. One of the cool things that Matt shares is how he views working with these types of organizations as a, a kind of paid PhD in how the world works. And examples he gives include vulnerable communities and climate change. And he describes that the work Constructive is able to do to being like impact at scale, even though they're not directly working, as he says, where the rubber hits the road. Now, I am totally inspired by this approach to running an agency. And so let's go on and hear more from Matt. So yeah, like I said, to start, just say your name and give us a quick summary of your background and what led you to the start of the agency. Sure. So my name's Matt Schwartz, and I'm the founder and executive director of Constructive. And we're a social change brand strategy and experience design firm in New York City. My background is in digital design and and also writing really originally. I studied both creative writing and visual studies in college and happened to graduate college into the advent of the commercial web. So my, you know, my career sort of started, I graduated in 93 and, you know, really significant digital work and sort of large agencies starting to build out, you know, digital parts of their businesses was happening, you know, in that time. And so starting in about, I think, 1995, I started working at, you know, places like Young and Rubicam had what they called new technologies at the time. And then there was, of course, the first dot-com boom. And my time in sort of figuring out what it was I was doing, et cetera, just coincided with that. So I have did really mostly digital design for the vast majority of my career and started the agency now 17 years ago, which really at the time was just myself. And I always had some, I mean, I've always been a, a pretty politically slash socially, if not you know, active, aware, and vocal person and sort of try to live my values that way. And I'm mindful of them. And so as I started to figure out what is it that I want to do, if I want to start my own firm and, and, you know, choose the kinds of projects that we work and how we apply our time, you know, that obviously made a lot of sense for me. And I had a couple of projects as these things happen when you're starting where you get a, you get a project here and there and it, it, it happened to be in the nonprofit space and, you know, those kind of can tend to beget additional work in that space. And over time, you know, just continue to shed any clients that didn't fit that model until we were, you know, fully just working with really nonprofits and academic organizations, higher education, and also like K through 12. 
And so, yeah, that's that's been the path to and and then, of course, you know, the the job and the the focus has become growing and specializing and focusing on what it is we do and figuring out, you know, beyond just focusing on a certain sector and a certain type of work. How do we approach work differently, add value that might be different than other agencies in the space? Mm, Yeah. And that last point I'm going to come back to. But just before that. You talked about that, your values and living your values, I think was the phrase you used, which is something that I think is really intriguing. So how big a part of the decision was that to the decision for starting the agency? Did you want to start the agency because of that or for different reasons? Yeah, I'd like to say yes, maybe, but no, you know, I think I really, the impetus to start the agency was that I wanted to, you know, I've always had a bit of a, you know, whether it's entrepreneurial or spirit or just, you know, hustling, right. I've always just kind of been that personality type. And I think I found myself frustrated by having where I'd like things to go for myself and opportunities, just being sort of hamstrung by folks who, you know, i maybe I didn't think we're doing as good a job managing or whatever. You know, I, I was young. So I think a lot of that was I was just young and probably not as good as I thought I was. Right. But I always had the mindset that I could go do something and whatever. And it just suited my personality type. So that was really the impetus. Mm, yeah. So then you're going through the, this journey of building up the business and the clients are coming in. You're trying to define what this new business that you're creating is. How long or how difficult was the journey from moving to I'm going to start an agency or run a business to I'm going to you use these on underpin everything with these values social changes you describe it now absolutely so you know as I alluded to earlier I mean when you're starting and you know I was in my 20s at the time you have to take work that comes your way, right? As long as you don't, you know, I never took a project on that I was vehemently opposed to what the, the client was about. They were usually just, you know, either could have been for a relatively big brand doing like banner ads or something. I mean, we don't do any of that kind of work now, but back in the day, right, you would do banner ads and there might be an agency that, you know, wanted to have me do freelance or whatever it was. And, you know, you take on those projects because you're just trying to, build your business and you're trying to figure out also sort of what kind of work you enjoy the most. And, you know, you build a sense of the connections between the types of different projects you do. And, you know, you get a better feel for yourself. And, you know, as you hire people, you get a sense of, you know, what kinds of things you can do and enjoy doing. And as I mentioned, it just happened that at a point we, through really personal contacts that I had, started to get a couple of projects that were related to just nonprofit issues. And of course, as I mentioned, given my background, just personally, I, I enjoyed that kind of work, you know, doing work for, you know, kind of clients who are selling things that I have no interest in and that I don't think are even that, you know, interesting in general, not really fulfilling work, right? It's not a great way to apply your thinking and your skill and your talent. And so more meaningful projects from a how they aligned with my values and my interests and, you know, things I'd like to see. And really, what's my contribution to the world at the end of the day, right? I mean, you have a finite amount of time on this planet, at least if you subscribe to that theory, which I do, <laughs> you know, and, and you have an opportunity to do certain things and spend your day a certain way doing work. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough that, you know, 
in part through happenstance by certain types of projects. I, you know, got more projects that were in that area and then maybe 13 or 14 years ago just decided that's all we would do and, you know, found ourselves able to not have to take on projects that weren't in that arena. And that's really what we did. Mm. And was that process challenging of that transition? You say you were slowly shedding the clients or the work that didn't quite meet this definition. Was that a difficult, challenging process for either personally or in business sense? It definitely wasn't a difficult challenge personally. And I'll say even there were times where I actually, there, were, there was one time in particular where I made a clear statement to the company that we weren't going to take on a certain type of work. And that is we had work that was tied to doing work for the financial services industry, but the way we were doing that work actually was very aligned with what we were doing, which was TIAA Craft, which is now just TIAA. And they are a financial services organization that is actually concentrated and focused on supporting the financial needs and retirement needs of teachers, of people in healthcare, in government, in cultural institutions. Well, we wound up getting a project here and a project there related to that just because. And, you know, this was actually at the time that the dot-com meltdown was happening. And it was, I mean, not the, the financial meltdown in 2007. And we had finished doing that work. And I just made the, the decision because I was actually very against the financial services industry broadly. You know, our client, TIAA, notwithstanding, just there were practices that I didn't agree with. And I just made it clear that we weren't going to do that. And actually, there was sort of some real support for that notion. And, you know, with regard to more broadly, it really was a shedding of clients. So, you know, that's the challenge with any brand, right? We do a lot of brand strategy work. And when I'm working with organizations and I'll help develop brand strategy, one of the points is that you have to be focused. And the challenge with focus is it requires giving something up. And so by doing that, you know, we were able to focus on what it is we did well. And, you know, sure, there are times where when you're not a huge agency and even they have that issue, you've got to make sure you have enough projects to keep yourself and your staff both busy and well paid. And every agency has moments where that's a challenge. But the focus was, you know, for us was a, was a boon in that it, it, it allowed us, as you say, to go an inch wide and a mile deep into a certain area and be known very well for that. And that's so I didn't find it hard. And I actually embrace that challenge and as a branding specialist as much as someone who does a lot of digital and we do a lot of technology work and development that's how i think about what great brands are made of and so it was a good journey for us to to think that way about ourselves mm, yeah that's much more rounded than just i don't mean just but then the purely the values part as well do you think that that focusing process was harder or easier or neither because of the focus that you chose? I would probably say neither, but only because I don't have necessarily anything to compare it to. You know, I think it was probably easier in that, you know, as we say sometimes with clients as we're developing brand strategy work and defining things like organizational mission and values is that we have a screen of values that determines what kinds of work and actually what kinds of people we're interested in working with and who see us as a, a really valuable partner who can help them and be a really good partner. And so, you know, I think it's easier in that 
we have even within the sector of doing nonprofit work and educational work, we've been approached by organizations where I really disagree with their mission somewhat significantly. And, you know, we got approached by, for example, the Church of Latter-day Saints out of the blue, which was kind of interesting because I'm a pretty vocal atheist. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting and nice. And, you know, I'm not going to necessarily turn that away. I'm not, you know, pro-organized religion necessarily, for example, but my first take was, uh, and it was a big, they, they said they had a really big budget. It came in via email. And I talked with my wife about it. And sort of one of the first things we talked about was, all right, well, but what's their stance on homosexuality? Like, let's just start there. And <laughs> it clearly didn't align with my beliefs because they don't seem necessarily tolerant of it or, and I hate the word tolerance, right? Accepting. And so we just said, no, right? I didn't even get back to them, I think. And I've had other ones where they were just maybe politically more right wing, right leaning than I am. And I just don't want to put our work to good, right? To the, to, to advance that. So I think that those things make it easier. Those values make it easier to decide. The key is, you have to have enough work to be able to say mm. no. Mm. That's yeah. it. It kind of comes down to that. Yeah. And I've I've been fortunate to not have to have been very often, if at all, and certainly not in recent history, to be faced with the moral dilemma and a moral hazard of saying, should I say yes to this because we really need the revenue? I haven't had to do that. And so I'm thankful for that. And that, I guess, makes it easier. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned that screening process can you tell me a little bit more about what that is, how defined it is, and exactly how you go through that process? Well, it's, I'd like to say that there's some matrix we plot someone against, you know, based on different values, but it's not that way at all. I mean, it really does come down to you just get a sense of what are these people doing? Who do they tend to work with? And I'll say that maybe because our our brand and what we're known for is pretty well positioned in areas where the kinds of clients that we want to work with know about us, the inbounds that we get are, by and large, from a values perspective, all clients we would more or less be happy to work with. I have, you know, that that LDS inbound that we got is one of very few in the recent, recent memory. We did get one from a sort of right of center think tank that I was like, look, I can deal with that. I'm not a dogmatic. They're right wing, but they're not, you know, they were center of right. And because we're known for that within a certain circle, the decisions come down to actually screening who's a good fit based on what their expectations of a partner is and what their understanding of what engaging a firm like ours means and how much they know about what they don't know and where they see us helping them and hopefully seeing that we're someone who knows a lot about what we don't know and that's what they're all about and that it's our job to learn all of that to help them. Our screening process actually is much more now about sort of interpersonal and financial fit and what we see the working relationship being like and the size of the project just for what we can handle because small projects can be challenging for us because you know, they can take up a lot of headspace, but not be large enough to keep the team busy. Mm. So that's kind of where it's all gone to at this point. And I think that's because we've really been clear about who we are and what we do and why we think it matters. Mm. That goes back to something else you said about 
about the luck factor. I mean, obviously luck plays a, an important part, but I'm a firm believer in you kind of influence or make your own luck as well. So what you're describing is a really clear brand and position and then seeing the benefits of that. And maybe I've paraphrased slightly. Yeah. No, absolutely. Look, and, and I'm with you that, you know, you make your own luck. I'm not going to kid myself. You know, your own luck is made for you. I'm a, I'm a white male who was born into a, you know, upper middle class family in the East Coast who went to a good college. You know, I've got a better leg up than most, but you do make your own luck in that we've been very deliberate and purposeful about how we want to be seen and, and, and who we are, right? And that hasn't been without its lumps, but it seems that overall that change has been quite positive. And actually a specific point of that is that we used to be Matthew Schwartz Design Studio for 15 years, and that became MSDS, which for those who may know is essentially material safety data sheet which I only know because my very first job out of college was as the purchasing manager and human resources person for an aluminum anodization factory in Long Island City. And so as a branding person, you know, I thought, you know, I would never advise a client to have an acronym as their name, certainly not one that is confused with something completely unrelated to what they do. And so we rebranded as constructive actually a little bit over a year ago, just, you know, again, decided it was time to take our own advice. <laughs> that was a purposeful decision. And it has turned into us being perceived and seen a certain way. And yes, you, you make your own luck that way. And so we have been in the past few years in particular, I'll say in the past three to five leading up to the, the naming, very purposeful about what we do and spending a lot of time developing thought leadership and content marketing and providing webinars and speaking. I've done a lot of that in the past few years and that's been with an eye towards you know, positioning our firm as a certain type of partner. And it has been successful you know, to some degree for sure. Mm. That's really interesting. So the thought leadership side of things, and you're describing that as obviously as a very deliberate part of the process, but has that been, from your own personal point of view, how did you start? Was there a starting point in that? Is that something that's just grown out of your, the wealth of your experience? Or what are the challenges, basically, I think I'm asking, what are the challenges for somebody who's wanting to start to do those sorts of activities? Sure. Well, it's, it's definitely a challenge. I will say that it is another job, to be honest, in a way. It's a, it's a job as much as I enjoy it, and I do. And I, like I said, I have a background in writing. I've done quite a bit of writing, and I do enjoy it. It's a job I wish I didn't necessarily have to do because I have other things to do that, you know, are, are part of running the business. But, you know, it's, it's a challenge. And it was it was both an outgrowth of my experience, as you asked about, but it also was a deliberate decision in that I knew it was important. I think in the era of search and how easy it is for people to find or partners to work with who are specialized and our field of social impact, sort of non consultancies, design firms that service and support social change orgs, well, that field has gotten huge in the years that I've been in it. It's far more competitive than it was when I started. Well, you kind of have an obligation if you want your business to be successful, I think, unless you're very fortunate and have a lot of contacts and a lot of internal referral business that comes from just personal networking to do that kind of work. So, you know, it, it, it 
the thing that's been fantastic about it is it does help hone your own thinking. And I think you, you know, you prove your expertise and to yourself as well as to others and you learn more and as you dig into things and I've become, I think, far more capable in explaining why we approach the work the way we do and thinking about us as an organization as a result of that. And the challenge is that there has to be some rigor and some repetition to doing that. And then you also, for a firm, I think it's important for the firm to share its expertise. It can't just be me. I've mm. wanted for, for a long time, which is why I didn't go with Matthew Schwartz Design Studio and it was MSDS because I didn't want it to be about me and my name, even though I'm a significant part of it. And so the firm sharing its expertise and setting up a process for that is just something that, you know, you can you have to do if you want to have it done. And, and we have. Yeah, awesome. Would you mind sharing just in a very brief high level, what you mean by the process for doing that? Really just setting up some kind of schedule, having a content creation calendar, having engaging staff in the process and finding ways for them to contribute, whether it's doing a, a webinar uh, or speaking or writing articles. And so for us, we just you know, it's never perfect, but the thought was, in essence, somebody here writes an article. It used to be every week, and we would just rotate so that you would have an article. You know, for us, it's somebody once every 12 or 13 weeks. I, I tend to try and write more frequently. But for staff, we've moved it to biweekly so that we're always putting something out there, hopefully mostly every two weeks. And it's that Somebody, based on their discipline and their expertise, comes up with something that is based on what it is they do within this, the company, the firm. And I and others here who, who provide sort of a supervisory role there try to give some feedback on how to guide it and make it of value to the client so that it's clear what the value to the client, our audience, and maybe it is for other designers or developers even. But I mean, our majority audience is hopefully, you know, people who are in decision making positions within organizations who can benefit from our expertise and who by reading articles gain something out of it and are inclined to talk to us. So we just try to make it a process where there's a bit of a schedule, there's a process for having the stuff developed, reviewed, edited, and published, and then, you know, shared in different channels. Mm, yeah, very cool. I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, and you you, you said some something along the lines of "there's been lumps in the pro, in the journey." <laughs> um, <laughs> do you have any interesting or or you know talking about those challenges and the situations that you as the, and the agency went through, and how kind of how what you learned from them and what happened as you come out of them? Yeah, sure. I mean, God knows how many of them there are, Barry. It's like <laughs> there are no shortage of lessons learned and learned and lumps received you know i think first of all it's it's a constant learning process right it's and you'd think after doing something for so many years that you've got every aspect down and you know i was just having a meeting with one of our new hires who's going to be leading our project management practice and talked about something and said, like, you know, you'd think after 17 years that we'd have this one particular thing I was talking about down, you know, right, but not necessarily so, or certain, you know, things change. And so I think, you know, there's one real 
big one. And I, it depends on how firms start. Like for me, the firm started as an outgrowth of, you know, my desire to do this and to build something that would create, you know, hopefully interesting and engaging jobs for people, you know, that, you know, earn a good living doing the work and creates a culture here and a community and all of that. Other places may be started by a couple of people and it may grow a little less organically, although I think it's all relatively organic. The thing that I think has been is that learning how to set process and structure in place, because that's not my background, for example. So if you're an organization where one or maybe two people have started the firm, right? And very often you'll see two people who maybe knew each other in design school or one of them was a designer and the other happened to do web development and they, you know, start things. Well, I'm not a project manager, for example, and I appreciate it a lot, but in the younger years of the company, A, from a financial perspective, you may have the people doing the work be the direct contacts and manage their work and their process. And you just sort of like communicate with each other to keep everything going. And the workload is such that that works. And it's a more direct collaboration between, for example, a designer and the client. Now, we still have that and our senior leads and such are always involved working directly with the client. But we've had to build out process and we've had to, you know, figure out where our blind spots are and figure out where things are a little fuzzy for us internally or figure out how we can be more clear in expectation setting for clients. And there are a lot of those kinds of things where it's, you know, for example, how do we make sure that people in the studio when they're working on a project, understand very clearly what the statement of work calls for and what we've agreed to do and what the measures of success financially and otherwise are going to be. Meaning, here's the project, here's about how many hours each of the tasks has set to it. And, you know, for certain clients, this looks like a really interesting opportunity and they didn't have as much budget, but we really want to sort of, we see some upside for us in terms of this could be a, a PR type thing, or, you know, it's a high visibility engagement. So we'll overinvest in this versus this is a project that we have to really stick to the budget. We can't, you know, invest our own time and money in essence, as a result of that in doing it. Well, you need to communicate that to people and you need to keep people on track, right? You need to make sure they understand how much time is left in each particular phase, etc. Those are lumps and you take them, the, the way they manifest themselves is when you, you know, do project health sort of recaps at the end of a project. And when we started, we didn't even do that kind of stuff, right? You didn't even look at the end of a project and do an assessment. It took several years to get to the point where we realized we should do that. Well, once you start doing that, you start sort of getting a sinking feeling in your heart when you take a look at how much over budget you went on something, right? And so process. And so I take it back to the idea of design thinking, which I have a lot of interest in. And, you know, you start with a lot of sort of ideas and energy and enthusiasm, and then through that, you take it to this heuristic phase where you're sort of feeling things out and, you know, playing with ideas and sort of getting feedback in the process of designing stuff for clients and also designing yourself as a company. And then at some point, you move to the algorithm stage and you move to this point where you have to keep doing that inventing and, and thinking in a design way for your own company. But you get to the point where you need to create those kinds of processes and you need to create 
scalable, repetitive types of tasks, functions, whatever you want to say. And I think we in the you know most recent years of our history have been at the point where we're being more deliberate about that stage of what it means to build an advantage and a sustainable business for ourselves that sort of capitalizes on all the energy and enthusiasm and that sort of soup <laughs> if you will, mm. when everything's kind of mixing around. So to me, the lumps have been getting to the point where we now realize and are thinking about who do we need to hire? Who's our next hire if we're going to bring someone on? What kind of skill set do they need to have? How will they complement what we do? How will we work together? We're thinking about that a lot more because of those lumps. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much there. Sort of as part of that or interwoven, how interwoven in amongst all that is the the high level purpose of, you know, the social change or working with brand, you know, the sort of values driven stuff? Well, one of the great things there are two things that, you know, I say about this. And the first is that because of the work that we choose to do and the clients that we choose to work with, you know, most of us are not in our daily lives out and, and I mean, most of us in the company out in the, the whether it's in the front lines doing actual like, let's say, activist work or the majority of our clients are a bit more on the sort of policy and research. And they may do certain types of programs, but maybe not activism and this kind of thing and supporting vulnerable communities, for example. Well, we're not out in the front lines of doing that work, whether it's doing research that helps improve policy or actually running programs that help people, but our clients are. And so, you know, your question as far as like, how do the values come into it? Well, I look at it and we look at it here as that's our opportunity to make that contribution, which goes back to, you know, what you asked earlier about sort of the work you choose to do and how those values inform what you're doing. Well, we get to have that kind of an impact. And for us, we think in a way, actually, we get to have it a little bit at scale, because what we're doing, ideally, is helping organizations that work with us to be more effective in a lot of different ways. And so we're making our impact doing what we do for a living, while the folks who are fighting the, the, the hard fought battles and doing the nitty gritty work day in and day out to actually you know, where the rubber hits the road of actual change happening while they're doing that. And so we get to do it a little bit at scale. So that's the first part, right, is that we get to play our part and contribute our part to the values we want to see realized in the world by that process and those partnerships. The second part is that this isn't necessarily values, but I like to say that one of the best things about what we do is if you do brand strategy and you do design work is that we get what I like to say is a sort of ongoing paid PhD in a class called how the world works. And we sort of, you know, based on the issues our clients work on, we get to learn a lot. Like I know a lot more about climate change and carbon emissions. We've been working on climate change and, and sort of the energy sector for a dozen years now. We know things about the judicial system. We know things about sort of vulnerable communities and families, you name it. And so we get to learn from our clients because they're experts in those things. And it's really exciting for us 
in a great client partnership where we get to really dig into and learn different facets of how different organizations are working on relatively big, important issues. So that is in a way of value too, right? Because we, a big value for us as designers is that you have to always be learning and you always have to be working with someone else because you're not designing if you're not doing it in a collaborative process. And the same goes with brand strategy. And many of our clients are people who are learning and are listeners by nature in what they do. And I think that's why there's a good partnership between design firms and social change agencies. So to me, that's kind of a value, right, to always be learning. Mm, That's extremely cool. Really interesting insight there. Two final questions. I know we're starting to run out of time, but to your last point there about design agencies and the broader environment for that, how do you feel about where agencies doing with the focus, for example, that you have, both design, maybe advertising, maybe technical, where do we fit and where do those those types of agencies fit in with, where's the future of that type of work? Can you, can you explain that a little bit? I'm not sure I get that. That's a big one, and I'm, I bet I can give a go at it, but I, I'm not sure I caught it exactly. Yeah, of course, yeah. It's a pretty, as you say, it's a, a big question. Yeah. Where do you think the future is for design agencies and, and creative and, and technical agencies doing the kind of work that you're describing there? The, I see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a great question, Barry. You know, I for me, things that I've seen for sure is that in any industry, as it reaches maturity and becomes, you know, a fully mature industry or market, you know, it's when there is a commoditization of the services, the products, if you will, and the lines of distinction between one firm or one provider, regardless of the market versus another are lesser and lesser. And there are an abundance of buyers and an abundance of sellers. And there's no doubt that the digital industry, if we're talking just about digital and really sort of brand strategy and such, has has reached that point, which is why we've specialized. And I think the future for me and where we've tried to be is, first of all, being a consultative thought partner and thinking beyond, you know, design is about problem solving. There's a great quote that I refer to a lot from a, a guy named Herbert Simon. So Herbert Simon said that anyone designs who is engaged in the act of taking existing situations and turning them into preferred ones. And what's really interesting about that quote is that it's not about an artifact. It's not about making anything. It's about the act of designing solutions to things and creating change. Mm. And so I think that there will always be a place for organizations that just do sort of, you know, tech work, building stuff, do design work, you know, making things. And when I say design, I mean in the sort of like the the very limited sense that people have of like designing something visually and making an interface or designing a logo and all of that. And I think that that kind of work is increasingly commoditized and it's a difficult Mm -hmm. spot to be in. And as things can be even more increasingly outsourced and you see things like crowdsourced stuff, well, that's all you need to know to say that being a firm that just does, does design work or that maybe does dev work is going to be a difficult challenge because there are lower cost providers. And if the buyers aren't necessarily sophisticated, they may not know the difference. And so what you don't see is crowdsourced strategic thinking, you know. And so I think being a true consultative thought partner that looks at a client and says, 
what's the situation you're in now and where is the situation that you're looking to go to? What, where do you want things to be in several years? And how are the things that we do? How can we help make that happen? And for us, because we do brand strategy work and which kind of filters almost sometimes into organizational strategy and we do a lot of messaging and positioning and we do a lot of the design and development side of things, there's a natural pairing there at times. I think other firms may struggle to do some of that a bit. And I think if you're not doing that kind of work, it becomes where do you become a strategic thinker that helps not just create a site, but provide insight and value, right? Getting away from the idea of creating a deliverable of a website, right? Into the site is a, is a manifestation of something and it serves a purpose. And how do we work together to, to help it achieve an organization's mission? I think the future, I don't know what the particulars of how companies will structure themselves and what we'll be making, but I think thinking that way should be the first way of approaching it. And then each company will find their own way to sort of position themselves as that type of partner. You know, one of the things I often say, and I've written an article about it on our site, is that in the nonprofit sector in particular, it's just part of culture. It comes out of procurement where a lot of large organizations will have this culture of calling design firms vendors and they'll issue their RFP and, you know, say they're looking for a vendor. And to me, vendor is a slur. It's not, you know, vendors sell you a hot dog. They don't create any strategic value. So, you know, the, the phrase that I always use, and I'll even correct people when we're sort of talking to them is, you know, look, partners, right? We're not vendors and you don't want to be a vendor. And if you are, that's not the direction where the industry needs to go and will go, in my opinion. And so changing that mindset and thinking that way on our side is what I think has to happen. Yeah, that's very clear and makes a lot of sense. There was so much more I would like to dig into, but I'm aware we're running out of time. <laughs> well, we can do a part two another time if you want. <laughs> yeah, I let's appreciate do that. it. I'm glad, I'm glad you found it interesting, I, you know, and hopefully others will too. Awesome. Yeah. And just finally, so for anybody listening who wants to find out a little bit more about Constructive and about the work you do, where can we point them? Sure, thanks. Well, we are at constructive.co, constructive.co, and we're in New York City on the corner of Houston and Broadway. We're Hey Constructive on Twitter. And we also have, we've created a product that is for producing digital reports and things that is at exposition.constructive.co. So yeah, that's, and we have, as I mentioned, we have a lot of thought leadership pieces, a lot of publishing. We have a newsletter, of course, on our site, sign up. And once a month, we publish our thought leadership, announce events, webinars. We do give webinars in conjunction with other organizations and that sort of stuff. So people can, if they want to stay in the loop, keep it not spammy. It's a once a month, ideally, as long as we're on our schedule well, and it'll give you insight into some of the stuff we're doing. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'll put all of those links into the show notes on happyportradio.com. Thanks again, Matt. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Barry. I appreciate it. You can get all the links and notes from this episode on happyporchradio.com, where you can also find out how to send us questions, feedback, and get involved in the conversation about this series. If you enjoyed the show, please share with anyone else who might enjoy it too. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.